This talk was given by Ron Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and co-director of ZCNYC. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation or find out more about the temple's retreats and residency programs, visit our website at zmm.org ccnyc. Thanks for listening. At the beginning of the Ango training period, Master Hangji taught, ordinary people and sages together share one house. We see our lives in the Buddha field of tranquil radiance. Then we empty our minds in the hall for creating Buddhas, where some naturally open their flower of awakening in this training garden in the mountains or in the city. Committed to never turning away for 90 days, we see the place where we were before we ever took a step. For three months of protecting life, enact the body and mind that does not attach to objects. Many bodies peacefully abide within one body, and one body engages the way within many bodies. Therefore, it is said that all Buddha, Buddha's Dharma bodies enter my nature. My nature joins with and becomes the same as the Tathagatas. So for this talk, I took uh, Roshi's words from last week, added some of my own, mixed them up, pulled in some Buddha stuff from the Buddha, and <laughs> that's my offering. Um, and I do that on purpose um, because the same message should go out to the Yango. And his talk is online, and this talk will end up online. Um, it's essentially the same talk, but different, which is the entire message of Zen Buddhism. <laughs> so we're beginning um, a 90-day training period called Ango, Peaceful Dwelling. And it's, it's a very interesting perspective, because it's not difficult to take up a meditation practice and just do your daily meditation in some way and maybe occasionally put a little energy in some way, a tender retreat or something like that. But that is not likely to bring you to the point of seeing with the same eye as the Buddhas and ancestors. It just isn't. That's the reality of the experience of just kind of cruising along. And so we have Ango as one of the most important skillful means of helping us Awaken, helping us transform our practice, transform our lives. And during this 90-day training period, there's a very um, clear intent to intensify our practice and to uh, look at the specifics of our practice. So formally, there's a form which invites you. And it's, the form isn't submitted to the Dharma police, by the way. I mean, it's, it's yours uh, to look at all the aspects that Ango practice takes up and invites you to decide how you want to enter that uh, and make that commitment. And it should be a reasonable commitment that you can do. And sometimes people need help, and we're quite willing to help you with that. Um, there's also informal participation in Ango. For one reason or another, you're not able to meet all the requirements uh, of, of doing Ango as a formal practitioner. Um, so that's actually not so important. I mean, it's nice to hear the names and get a sense of the, the Sangha participating. Uh, but what's much more important is that you do what you can, appropriate to your life, your practice, but dedicated 
to your own practice and awakening. Um, this is not uh, a casual thing, and it's not some New Age thing. In fact, just the opposite. Ango goes back to the time of the Buddha, uh, when during the rainy season for three months, and I think there were two of them a year, uh, the wandering monastics would gather in a more sheltered area and practice with, uh, together more intensively with the Buddha and the senior students. And that tradition has con- con- continued uh, to the present day. So it's at least 2,500 years old. And I think every school of Buddhism has it in one form or another. Um, and so um, here we are. Um, it's a continuing tradition, and it's a tradition in which we meet our ancestors, literally. We meet the women and men who have been practicing since the time of the Buddha, who've practiced with intent, who've realized clarity out of that, and have transmitted that clarity to others, formally and informally, so that the reason we are here in this hall today is because of this practice, of this ango, and these men and women, without whose efforts you would not be here. You would not have the opportunity to practice the Buddha Dharma, which from the perspective of many lifetimes is the most important thing that you can do. I want to also mention, uh, talking about ancestors, to consider the Native Americans who are our ancestors in this very spot, um, this location, who lived here, who treasured their lives with dedication to their practice. Uh, and um, who didn't consider this land as something they owned, but something they were. So the Lenape, the Rockaway, and the Canarsie Indians, according to Dr. Google, are who lived here, because I didn't know that. But I thought it important to find out, and find out a little bit more, which I did, but I'm not going to share right now. Um, because that's... That's part of the respect for this land, for, the, for our ancestors, for what we're doing here, and the implications of how we got here, uh, and the karma of how we got here. We share one house. It's a very big house and a very small house. When we don't understand that, when we don't understand the sharing, we get confused, and we hurt, and we hurt others. So it's important. The Buddha's term for that is karma. But karma is rooted in one whole body. If you just know karma, then you just know one side of it. The other side is to see for yourself that one whole body. That's what this practice is is concerned with. So it's one body, one dharma, one sangha, one practice. Yes, there's Zen practice, and then there's Tibetan practice, and then there's Vipassana practice, and then there's Buddhist practice. But there's Native American practice and many other practices, practices of contemplative Christianity and non-contemplative Christianity, and on and on and on we go. There are many ways to investigate the reality of our being. There's one earth. There's one awakening. You know, we say to see with the mind of the Buddha, the eye of the Buddha, but it's also your eye. It's not different. It leaves nothing out. It includes everything. And in the quote I just read from Hung Ji, he speaks of it. We see our lives as in the Buddha field of tranquil radiance. 
This is the point. That's the point of Ango. Within this field is everything we need. We can see it as something lacking, but that's our mind. It's a mind of lack. And we can see it as, as something that is the tranquil radiance of our life that has no limitation while manifesting as your particular life. So the Ango commitment is to commit to this ancient path here and now. It's never old, never out of date, and it's always in accord with as things are, with reality itself. And we study by not turning away. You know, we live in a world that cultivates turning away, distraction. Anything but... And, you know, we can all name the ways. And we're captive to them. But do we know we're captive? And if we have some inkling that we're captive, begin practice there. It's not a problem that we're captive. We're always captive. We're deluded human beings, every one of us. But we begin practice there and see through our delusions. There's a secret that kind of we don't tell you at the beginning. Your delusions are never going to go away. You know, we want to get rid of our delusions. We want to get rid of our suffering. We want to get rid of our pain. Psst. Hey, they ain't going away. But they are seen through, can be seen through. And in that seeing through, We become free of them. And by the way, it's good that they don't go away. They make us human. You know, we we wouldn't want to model our practice after a model that is not human being, that is not ourselves, because we have all that we need. So we don't turn away. We don't turn away from ourselves. We don't turn away from this hall, from this Buddha field so that we can see what is before us, which is so immediate and so close and so present and so distant. And it's always present. It's always been present. So in Ango entering is entering the hall of the Buddha, this hall, the Buddha's hall. It's a conscious period of three months, and we turn towards that which cannot be seen and towards what cannot be known. Think about that. We can't know it, which is two things. But we can enter it and be it. So we use what is present and what is tangible, use what is here and before us, and practice to make it tangible, to make it seen, not necessarily with our eyes, to make it known, not necessarily with our discriminating mind, and to offer it, not necessarily with our thoughts and words, although none of that is excluded. So this is our vows. This is our commitment to awaken, and in entering the Sangho, we attend to the very, very tangible things and enter the various forms of practice so that we come into this single house, which ultimately has no doors or gates, no limits. So I want to go over some of the 
aspects that are going to be offered at the monastery and here and elsewhere uh, as part of the Yango training period. There's already been a peaceful dwelling intensive at the monastery and an equivalent here. We're just finishing a session this morning here. Uh, so that's the Yango opening. It's where the, uh, the leader of the Yango takes her seat and begins. Uh, it's later in September is a wild grasses session with Hojin Sensei at the monastery. That's for women only. And then each month, September, October, November, later in the month, is a full week session with the three teachers, part of Ango, consistent with the Ango themes. And then the last one is the Shusohosan session in November, in which the, um, the leader of session offers Dharma Encounter and concludes her three month of training. I'll speak a bit more about that. Here, we just finished a session, an Ango opening session. We have a Zazenkai with Hojin Sensei or myself in each of the next three months, a half day sit in each of the next three months. There are retreats here. Uh, next Saturday is the Eightfold Noble Path that I'll be leading. Uh, there's a retreat on staying present, the creative process retreat with Hojin Sensei and some other teachers, uh, non-Zen teachers. There's open light and creating a space in body and mind with Iyengar Yoga, with Ngaku Dreyfus, who's a, an MRO student. At the monastery, there's a, a workshop on Chato. The Japanese Art of Tea, led by Hobi, Hobai Bakarik, who's a participant in Ango and a student. There's the Ango Intensive, led by Shugen Roshi on the Seven Factors of Awakening in October. A Qigong Retreat by Sifu Pragada Blaine. I've done his retreats. They're amazing in terms of energy and body. And Four Truths Chan Retreat with Rebecca Lee. Rebecca Lee is a very respected Chan teacher, uh, who I believe teaches in the city as well. The focus of the Ango is going to be on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. We start at the beginning. It's not basic, though. It infiltrates and permeates every aspect of Zen Buddhism. The Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth that it does not have to be that, and the truth of is how it doesn't have to be, the Eightfold Noble Path. There'll be study sessions, at Zen Mountain Monastery, which will go past Ango, and all of that will be online. There'll be study sessions here. I'll be offering three study sessions, and really a, a fourth, if you want to look at Saturday's retreat. We'll be working with uh, Piyadasu Thera's book, a Tibetan, uh, not a Tibetan, but a Theravada monk, The Buddha's Ancient Path, 
And it's helpful to, to actually study this. It's an ongoing project of practice. I mentioned Shugen Roshi's Ango Intensive. I want to spend a few moments talking about Hojin Sensei's uh, leading the art practice. And I've said many times how in my own Ango study, uh, art practice for me was an absolutely transformative perspective, which I was led kicking and screaming, you had to do it if you lived at the monastery. I didn't want to do it. Um, I was very resistant to anything artistic. <laughs> and Hojin and Jiman, uh, if you know Jiman, kind of grabbed me by the ears and said, you got to do this. You especially have to do this. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> and um, it opened up doors that I had no idea existed for me that were essential, essential to my practice, to engage it. And I think that's true for everybody. And I began a relationship with the muse that deepens and continues to this day. I don't know her, but she sure as hell knows me. (laughs) So the art practice, the creative process practice, is an illuminating journal, uh, illumination, lighting up, putting light, bringing light. And it's the art of noticing, of seeing. And it's, she quotes it as a three treasure, three treasures, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, three treasure, treasure hunt. Uh, And she suggested taking a journal of 90 pages or so, one for each day, and working with the ineffable. And so... You can carry a little journal around, as I have, will, am, and work with crayons or markers or pencil or whatever each day and make a mark. And you're not drawing something and you're not keeping a diary. You're seeing something and responding to that. So you're sitting on the train and there is something. What is that thing? It's yours. And so you make a mark. And you do that each day. You can make more than one mark. And so anything, anyone can enter the journal. And as you notice, as you study noticing, you get quieter, you get closer, and you enter peaceful dwelling. Something happens. Again, it's inevitable. You use your environment that you're in. I commented during the past session, I I think on the first day, so not everybody heard it, how the morning before I came here, I live in a very rural area when I'm not here in Pennsylvania, and it's a beautiful, remarkably beautiful area with woods and not quite mountains, but wooded hills. Um, Sometimes they're called mountains in Pennsylvania, but no. Um, Being from Colorado... um, (laughs) My mountains are better than yours. Never mind. Um, And, you know, it was the morning I was coming into the city, and I grew up in the city. I I know it's in me, this this particularly Brooklyn. And I'm looking, and, you know, my feet are in the dirt, and my body and mind are in the sky and the trees, and, you know, I'm using words to describe what I can't describe. But I, I know it. It knows me. 
And I'm thinking, how will I do this in the city, this intimacy? And I come here and I, I do it, just as you can do it. But it requires noticing and awareness and a dedication and a letting go, not being caught up and yet being fully present. And so the space between yourself and your environment gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And what happens when there is no space? The Buddha was always in direct contact, contact with the elements. Of course, that was his life. Direct contact with the senses, our senses. And through that, it comes closer. You know, he awoke on sitting under a tree. I, I also commented in the uh, session about how it's been known a while, but re- recent research, really recent research, which I've been following, uh, shows the incredible connectivity of trees in a forest at a microscopic level, which is extraordinarily complex. Because it's been so complex, it's been ignored scientifically, the degree of it, how one tree over there supports another tree over there, which is not even the same kind of tree. And, of course, that's multiplied. And so one tree, when one tree is ailing, the other trees ship nutrients to it through these microscopic uh, highways. Uh, this is not an accident. We know so little of how this world is a single world. And, you know, frankly, it scares the shit out of me when we do things to this planet that we have no idea what we're doing. And we, we keep repeating, you know, you repeat the same mistake over and over and over and over and over again, and you don't get the fact that you don't understand what's going on. And we're good at that. We do it personally, too, don't we? Um, there was just, I think yesterday, posted on the web uh, a video of uh, Hojin presenting the Ango art practice. So please take a look at that, because it will offer you some support and some ideas of how to make it yours. And that's the key to Ango practice, is to making it yours, to enter into it. And it's okay not to be comfortable, and I speak from experience. Um, it's designed not to be comfortable, to open you up and to stretch you and to take you past your comfort zone because your comfort zone is what imprisons you. Uh, And it's designed at the same time to be doable, and there's plenty of support here at the monastery, phone call, email, in person, to to do this. Uh, I mentioned the Buddha's awakening came under the, the Bodhi tree, and he was in contact with the elements around him, the sun, the tree, the critters, the bugs, the bees. Um, I sit outside a lot when I'm not here. A lot. Uh, Even in bad weather, uh, I have a little overhang and I sit in a chair usually. And there's something about it. uh, Something that actually, I wouldn't say it's distracting, but it pulls me out. And then I let that go. And then I just sit in it. And, um, you know, there's something that happens that I really can't talk about, but I think we all can connect. Uh, And when I was a young child, living a very unhappy and somewhat difficult childhood, the only time I was happy was in those Catskill Mountains when my parents, thinking they were sentencing me to eight weeks at sleepaway camp at the age of six, think about that, when I was happiest. Two things, no parents and mountains. Trees, forest. 
want to mention a couple of other things. Um, the climate summit at the UN, speaking of outside. So Greta Thunberg is coming. On September 20th, there's a climate strike. We need to be aware of how we can take care of this, our home. Um, and so there's a general strike. There'll be folks, you can, Roshi's coming down with a bunch of people from the monastery. We have a, an environmental group, and I think there'll be some information on that. Is that true? Yes? No? Okay, so we'll hear more about that. Uh, and that's important. Uh, and they'll be gathering around the world on that day to, to note this. Also, David Lo- Lloyd, a Buddhist teacher, a very highly respected Buddhist teacher, uh, has released a book called Echo Dharma. And he'll be giving a small session here at the temple. I don't have the date in front of me. It's a limited group uh, on purpose. And I, I don't know if there's a sign up for it, but I, I do want to note, it, note that it's going to happen. And the group will be limited so that you can actually, it's a rare opportunity. He's a remarkable teacher, remarkable person. And um, I think he, also he's going to be offering a workshop at the monastery next year. And um, if this is an area of interest to you, I would suggest to connect with him. Um, also during Ango, before, after, the kind of the umbrella organization, the Beyond Fear of Differences and its tentacles into all the different groups that we uh, have here through the MRO, Mountains and Rivers Order, uh, the anti-oppression groups. Uh, I would name them. I always miss one, and then people <laughs> yell at me, don't you? Sorry. So I won't name them. <laughs> but they, tr- we try and address, or you try and address, the Sangha tries to address, and that's the key, um, the, the heart of these issues, and really work them and make it real, make it alive, uh, give it energy. Um, uh, I also want to mention, if you're not familiar with it, or if you ha- are but have not read it, the series of articles in the Washington Post and New York Times on the karma of slavery, which is a remarkable series, and uh, from my perspective should be required reading. It's stunning. It is stunning. Um, I remember way back when, uh, you know, when I saw kind of a presentation of that in a slightly fictionalized form in Roots, um, and how stunned I was by that, how in my face it was. There it is. Um, This is even more real, if you want to use that kind of terminology, more factual, yet more clearer in our responsibility and our karma that we all share, and no matter who we are. Uh, And I want to note something that Shugan said, and I feel, and I wanted to articulate. um, It kind of, I'll date myself. Um, You know, the old song from the Vietnam War era. Uh, I'm missing the tune, but something's happening here. Something is happening here. You know, it goes on, there's a man with a gun. That's also happening, obviously. Uh, I think we're in the midst of a revolution. I think. 
And, you know, when the important events that occur that transform our lives as a society and individually, um, and the possibilities for the future are opening up, often we're not even aware that this is happening when it's happening. Um, and yet, I think important things are happening right beneath the obvious surface, and sometimes on the surface, sometimes visible. And I saw this happen with the Vietnam War and my own involvement in the protests, good and bad, because there was that, and also the racial issues that were present then, good and bad, and the reaction to that, and the environmental issues you know, that were coming forth in those years that changed things, mostly, but not entirely for the better, and also fuck it up, if you will, with the law and the, you know, the confusion of politics and etc. That's all part of it. To be clear on it, to understand, to not create more violent karma, to understand that we can have an enemy and yet not have violence towards that enemy. That's crucial to the Buddhist path to understand that and why that's true and how that's true and how that's at the heart of everything we do, that understanding. So here we are now in the midst of acknowledging individually and together as a sangha, as a society, as a country. And to what degree we won't know what this change is. Of course, there's always change, but we won't know as we're in the midst of it. And they're always nonlinear, and they don't follow our prescribed plans or path, and the outcomes are not controllable. But there is something happening, and that something will happen in direct proportion to our involvement, individually and collectively. And that's it. I mean, the Vietnam War, basically, withdrawal was stopped because of people, who, many of them college students, who risked the, themselves. I've spoken many times of uh, a woman I personally know who was shot and killed at Kent State, if you know what Kent State is, um, and on and on. So we all have work to do to dig into the suffering that is before us. Some of it is institutional and political. Some of it is, all of it is personal. There's no suffering that's not personal. All of the suffering is supported by our ignorance towards our wholeness, towards our interbeing. Our ignorance of our entwined roots, of our historical and personal karma, and the ignorance of our history as human beings, as a citizen of this society participant of this. And our practice invites us, this ango invites us to see the connection that goes deeper than connection. It's not just connection, it's identity that goes right into a single body, each of our bodies, a single body. And that's this practice. And ango is a way to do this. The earth and all of its beings and creatures needs you. We need each other. 
We need our efforts. When I say need you, needs our efforts, needs our willingness. And I'm not just talking, please don't frame this as socially doing good. I'm talking about waking up and living out of that. I'm not talking about another good cause. There's plenty of those, certainly. But I'm really talking much more personally than that. Really personally. In terms of who you are and your own being. And that's where Ango puts its fundamental energy. So that we know that if we practice having an open heart and a deeply connected being, that we can take up the responsibility for our life and we can help, help ourselves and help others. I want to mention that Yosha Scott Childress will be leading the Ango as the chief disciple. Uh, she's a practitioner who lives near the monastery. Uh, she's been a student since 2008. She took Jukai in 2014. She's a librarian, a parent. Many of us know her child who participated in camp. Uh, Zen Kids, and is now someone I look up to. (laughs) Um, So that's a role of providing example, using her own practice. And it's important, even though you may not see her, you've seen other people with white robes, and the senior monastics who come in, even though their robes are black, are are seniors, and there are many others. Uh, It's important to see how the training and practice offers a method of transformation that effectively steps into the leadership of the Sangha. And if you look at the people who have responsibility and hold the Sangha in that particular way, it's not a coincidence that they start with wearing gray robes, that they wear a raksu when they take the precepts as the foundation of their life, that as they continue, as their practice continues and deepens, they step into a white robe and become a senior practitioner. They give talks, and on it goes from there. It's important to see that, because that's you. You to the extent that you want to practice and realize yourself. So we, the training offers that. And it's public training, particularly being Shuso heads, you know, being out there and leading. I mean, uh, Shusos can speak to the time that they first gave their first talk or sat in the front of the Zendo. Who, me? You know, and, you know, were asked to give encouragement. Who, me? Yes, all of us. We all start this way. And we don't know how. But somehow... We learn. We teach ourselves. We teach others. So the training here is essential. It's in so many little ways when you, you know, how you experience a, a, a liturgy, a formal liturgy, who's hitting the instruments, how they're hitting it, what's happening. Why is the senior monastic whispering to the, to the doan afterwards? It's called training. So that's so valuable, so valuable. And has to, the, the, the permission for that has to come from the student. Or, you know, it's a fight. So let me cl- close with 
the Buddha's words. This is the path itself. For none other leads to clear vision. He's, he's talking about the Eightfold Noble Path here, the focus of the Sangha. Come, friend, enter this way, and you will confuse Mara. Entering this way, one may end all suffering. This is the only way I have preached, since it removes the arrow of suffering. It is you who must enter the path. The Buddhas only point the way. Those who walk this path of meditation will free themselves from sorrow. Thanks for listening. You can find more Dharma Talks, interviews, and events at zmm.org media. While online, please check out the Jizo Project, our multifaceted initiative to make Zen Mountain Monastery more accessible and welcoming to all. Learn about the new Jizo House building and accessibility enhancements to existing facilities that are just two aspects to this exciting endeavor. Find out more and see how you can get involved at zmm.org slash Project. That's J-I-Z-O-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.